I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. I really believe that we are constantly affecting everything around us and it responds to us. So if we can hold or primarily hold a positive feeling about the world, about ourselves, and hold hope, we can change the world. This is Death, Sex, and Money, the show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sam. Welcome to spring and the summer rain Softly turn to sing again Welcome the bud, the summer blooming flower This is Beverly Glenn Copeland, whose music has become a source of comfort and joy for me over the last few years. Glenn is a Canadian musician and singer-songwriter whom I first talked to in 2020, and then again just a few weeks ago for an update you'll hear at the end of this episode. He's been quietly putting out albums since the 1970s. This song, Ever New, was released by Glenn in 1986 on an album called Keyboard Fantasies. The album went largely unnoticed until 2015, when a Japanese record collector emailed Glenn to ask if he had any more copies. I wouldn't go so much as to say it was exciting. I would say I was thinking, oh, that's, that's great. And, and there must have some around here somewhere. And I didn't even remember where they were. My wife said, yeah, this is where they are. And she went and pulled them all out. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd still be looking for them, right? <laughs> and he sold those uh-huh. within a week and a half. And then what happened was, All of a sudden, within probably a month of him selling those records, I started getting calls from record companies. And then at that point, that was when my jaw hit the floor. Suddenly, in his 70s, Glenn's career took off. And 2020 was supposed to be the year when all this new attention and opportunity was going to come together. A new documentary about Glenn was headed for film festivals, a new collection of his music was being released, and an international tour was planned. And then, of course, the tour was called off. It was interesting because I really didn't have much time to think about the loss of the touring. I was so busy thinking about the loss of a home. At the time, Glenn and his wife Elizabeth were also in the midst of moving. They'd already sold their old house, and when the projected earnings from the tour went away, they could no longer afford the place they'd planned to buy. So we ended up being homeless. That's how I first learned about Glenn's music. 
Producer Afi Yellowduke told me about a GoFundMe his daughter started that raised around $75,000 for Glenn and Elizabeth. Word spread quickly among his fans and people in the queer community who wanted to help out Glenn, a trans elder. Almost 3,000 people from all over the world donated $25, $20, $30, whatever they could afford. And they were people who we knew were also going through difficult times as well because everybody was going through uncertain times. Glenn and his wife were also given a place to stay. When we first talked in 2020, Glenn was sitting next to his electric piano in a guest house overlooking the Atlantic coast in New Brunswick. We were offered this place in June when we no longer had a home. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful. Who offered it to you? Um, two, two people married to each other, both, both international lawyers, a man and a woman who had made a whole lot of money, uh, found out about our situation and offered it to us for nothing until we could find out, you know, until, until spring, at t- which point they considered that we would have found another home. Wow. So these are people mm-hmm. you did not know previously? Not, not at all. And they said, we have this home on the coast, come stay here. What was that like, Glenn, when, when people you didn't know said, Come stay. I mean, it was uh, it was a, a, a point of being stunned, actually, because my wife and I had been um, under such stress to have, you know, to essentially not know where we were going to live for, oh, five months. They called it paying it forward. Did that feel comfortable to accept for you? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Good. <laughs> totally. You know, if you, can't, if you can't accept a gift when a gift is being given by the universe, you got problems. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> it was a gift from the universe, but it didn't solve their housing instability long term. As Glenn told me when we caught up just a few weeks ago. We're living in our fourth temporary home since the pandemic and are currently in the midst of move number five. Glenn described the last year as a wild ride. And he said he and his wife are still on the lookout for a permanent housing solution. We'll have more of an update from Glenn at the end of this episode. Before Glenn wrote and performed his own music, he studied classical singing and performance. He grew up playing piano in a Quaker home in Philadelphia. His family had a Steinway in the living room. He left to go to school in Montreal, where he was one of the first Black students to study music at McGill University. But after McGill, he realized he wanted to take his career in another direction. I want to to start to write music that incorporates the music from all all over the world and many other cultures. Uh, That's what hit me. Uh, What I did was I took the guitar and and I didn't know anything about anybody else doing this either. And I started retuning the strings and every piece that would come to me would have a different tuning on the strings hmm. and I'd have to retune the thing. And I played it with a pick as though it was a drum. 
Did it feel, do you remember a feeling of fear as you were stepping away from all of those <laughs> familiar slots? Not, not even one ounce of it. Really? I, just, I don't, I don't know. No, I, I just went, oh, this is what I'm going to do and next. And I did it. Can you tell me about, like, what is it about you that you think makes, makes it feel like not a big deal to say, like, all these, there are all these like ways that people have done this before, but I'm just going to try something really different and not feel too worried about it. I don't think I'm too sensitive. <laughs> uh. I really didn't think about I'm doing this because I'm, I'm, I want to I create a career. Hmm. It, it was a drive. How were you supporting yourself with money at that point? Oh, listen, I had no money. The first, um, <laughs> oh, money. Listen, I lived, when I started doing that, I had just finished breaking my foot off of my bone, oh. literally. Yeah, I was in a full cast on one leg, not, not walking. The only thing I could afford was one little room that was on a second floor. I had to go up on my cast. I ate peanut butter. That's how I lived. Peanut butter and sardines. Hmm. And it was fine. Mm-hmm. I felt totally free. I wasn't f- afraid of it. It was just like, this is what it is. I'm, I'm free to like explore this. I'm going to explore this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I look on it now with great am- amazement. <laughs> you, you, because youth is like, you know, the, the great thing about youth is that it isn't afraid of anything. And the, the difficulty about youth is it has no idea what it should be afraid of. <laughs> How did you begin your work in children's television? Uh, I had a very dear friend, and she had a, a very good friend. And this good friend, she was a writer for this show. She got in touch with me um, and asked me if I would be willing to be on this program called The Mr. Dress-Up Show. She said, we'd love to have you on this show, and we're writing you in as a character, but we also would like it if you would write music for this show for this particular episode. So I did. And I had just the most wonderful time. I was just like, oh, goody two shoes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I had to get dressed up in all these silly costumes, right? And I had to talk to these puppets who were, you know, were just amazing. And, um, uh, and, and then I, and I wrote music for the show. Well, afterwards, they loved it so much that all the other writers started writing me in. And after a while, I became a character who was considered to be one of the neighborhood folks mm. in the show. And, um, and I wrote all, you know, I probably wrote a hundred songs mm. for them. And it, 20 years passed by. Wow. That's a large portion of your adult life. Yes, it was. What was like the thing you wanted to convey? to a child who's watching. I wanted to convey to children that what they were looking at was made, made them feel safe, made them feel loved, made them feel seen, um, not talking down to them, mm-hmm. but engaging them in their own imagination. Mm-hmm. 
did you feel seen and heard and safe when you were growing up? Uh, yes and no. Depends on uh, what aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I felt very safe as a child in terms of that um, my home was a safe place. My parents were, you know, very safe from that perspective. Um, now, the ways in which I did not feel safe uh-huh. did not happen until I revealed to my parents that I was a boy in a girl's body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Coming up, Glenn talks about how he began to understand his gender identity and how his parents reacted to it. My parents were Black, for God's sakes, and they knew what it was like to have to be able to be safe in a, in a society mm-hmm. in which you were basically second-class citizens. are working on another episode about the moments in movies that have stuck with you and helped you figure out important things in your life. You might remember that just a few months ago, our resident movie superfan, executive producer Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, made an episode with your stories about what you've learned about sex and intimacy from movies. And now we are collecting your stories about a different sort of film, the sports movie. There's just nothing like a sports movie to inspire new ways of thinking about resilience and how to make it through tough times. As this listener told us about the 2019 comedy, Britney Runs a Marathon. It's incredible to watch a person doing a hard thing (laughs) and she didn't win and she, it, it wasn't miraculous, you know, Thousands and thousands of people, you know, probably millions of people run marathons. Um, But to just watch this one particular story um, was really meaningful to me. We want to hear from more of you. If there's a sports movie that helped you through a pivotal moment in your life, tell us about it. We've been hearing from a lot of women in our audience. Thank you for showing up. And we want to hear from the rest of you, too. Record a short voice memo about your movie pick which characters or scenes stand out, and how this movie helped you in a moment in your life when you needed it. Then email it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. With what seems like an endless amount of information at our fingertips, we tend to forget that wondering about things is really part of the journey to finding answers we're looking for. So when it comes to the hot topics of Israel, Judaism, and Zionism— There's so much to wonder about right now that it's hard to know where to turn. Enter the latest weekly podcast from Unpacked, Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam. Join hosts and educator extraordinaires Michal Biton and Noam Weissman as they tackle these topics and the uncomfortable questions that surround them with the goal of working towards the answers together with their listeners. No matter where you're from, if you've ever wondered about anything, this is the podcast for you. So check it out. Subscribe to Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam on your favorite podcast app today. Wondering Jews is brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. From the time he was a child, Beverly Glenn Copeland knew he was different from the people he saw around him. But the words he used to describe his gender identity and sexuality changed over the years. 
In the 1960s, when Glenn was a student at McGill, he identified as a lesbian, and his parents were alarmed when they found out he was dating women. Well, they were frantic, mm. absolutely frantic, because, first of all, the, the um, literature coming from the psychiatric um, community at that time called it all a disease. Mm-hmm. They were trying to protect me from every perspective. But in the protecting of me, of course, it turned into, into being, you know, quite repressive. Did you feel their anxiety and their worry as protection? Yes, yes. Or, or did it feel... Your, oh, you mean around this particular in, Like, this how issue? did you experience it? You are, you say that you can understand their urge to protect. What did that feel yes, like? No, I, yeah, I, I understood it as that they were um, deeply worried about me um, and that it wasn't something that I would be able to talk with them about. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, it was like um, not safe. This but is a part of me they, point, can't, they, weren't, they can't handle. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, they can't handle. So, so, so I was, you know, but later it turned into a bit of a witch hunt, unfortunately. And they, they, they did some things that were actually quite dangerous to my, to my freedom and my health. I was in danger of being put in a hospital and electroshocked. Hmm. How did you stop that from happening? Uh, w- one time they literally forced me into an automobile um, with, uh, it over, overpowered me, and they took me to this doctor's, this, this ordinary doctor. He wasn't a psychologist or a psychiatrist or anything. And, um, you know, I was forced marched into this guy's office and uh, he starts picking up the phone to call the hospital to have me committed. And I, I literally ran out the door and outpaced my parents. You ran away from and them. And managed to, uh-huh. yeah, I ran away from them. Do you remember where you went when you stopped running? Where did you end up? I ran into a telephone booth and, and put my finger down the list of psychiatrists. And my fingers stopped at one. And it was, it was within two blocks of where I was. I raced to this guy's office with my parents on my heels. They came in shortly after, after me, but I said I need to speak to this psychiatrist by myself. I told him what was happening. He freaked out, called my parents into the office and said, if you do not cease and desist, I will take this person into protective custody. I couldn't believe it. Of all the psychiatrists in the world, I found one who understood. How did you come back to a relationship with your mother that felt safe after having to outrun her it was very it was it was it was extremely interesting so at one point my mom from my, my perspective you know became so upset about me and she became you know so it became so difficult that i felt that every time i spoke with her that she was actually becoming abusive I understand what was happening. I do understand. But at that time, I just, I just said to her, you know, I don't think I'll ever speak to you again in my life. 
and I hung up the phone. I really didn't give my mom a second thought, and that's the honest truth of it. And then one day, a year later, I suddenly was reaching. I suddenly went, oh, I think I'll call my mom. And I reached for the phone. Literally, the phone rang. It was my mother on the other end. And her words were, oh, my darling, please forgive me. Hmm. And that was the end of that problem. Wow. What did it feel like to hear those words from her? Oh, it was like, oh, oh, of course I forgive you. <laughs> Let's just get back to being, you know, mother and child. <laughs> you know, I love you. I've always loved you. Let's just get back on that, right? And and it was and we were back we were back on it and she was from that point on a champion for me, constantly telling me to live my life, not and and defending me in any way. I'm curious, having having had that experience and mm-hmm. feeling the dangers that you could face because of your lack mm-hmm. of uh, emotional protection and also legal protection. Um, mm-hmm. Did you did you feel at risk as you were a professional person, as you were working in children's television, about who you were? Did you have to hide? No, it didn't change my life. I mean, I just went off and continued living my life, right? Um, but I was aware, well aware of the fact that if it became known um, in in the in the general public that I was transgendered, that it would be a difficulty for the parents who you know who who had their children watching the the Mr. Dressup show. So I waited. Once I understood that I was transgendered, which was in 1990, whatever to say, 1996, 1995, 1995, um, I, um, you know, I, I let all my, my close friends know, but I did not discuss it um, in public mm-hmm. until 2003. And I won't ask what was gained, babe. Between your love and your tears Since coming out publicly in the early 2000s and having his music rediscovered in 2015, Glenn has reached a whole new, younger generation of fans. His backing band is also made up of young musicians who are mostly in their 20s. My great dream is that I can take all seven of them with me wherever I go, for which I will need thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. So, you know, I don't know how it's going to happen, but it it is my prayer. How has your life been changed by spending all this time with your band? Um, They became like teachers. Oh, teachers. Um, Yeah, teachers. because that's what uh, young people are teachers for older people and older people are teachers for younger people. They were totally hip to absolutely everything that was going on in the world musically from one pole to the other in every single country. And they would sit around discussing it all and blah, blah, blah. It was like they were speaking Greek. And, you know, and I would, <laughs> and I would, I would say to them, like, well, well, could you t- tell me a little bit more about this? And they'd go, oh, not only tell you, and then they'd put on music, yeah. right? <laughs> 
And I go, oh my God, listen to that. So they were constantly educating me musically. And then, of course, the way in which they, they just the way they were together was, was a, a, you know, they were so at ease with each other. And, and you know, I mean, like, 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 check this out. Like, they were so at ease that they could sleep all in the same beds together, males and females, without it being about sex. Mm. Just about protection and the need for, you know, for company. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Check that out. That's a whole (laughs) other level of reality. That felt cool. That felt like new, like, oh, this, this is a way of being. Yes. And I mean, I understood that. But to actually see them be able to be like that, mm. it was like, okay, this, this is a step in human growth. Good grief. Look at this. Oh, interesting. Like right? seeing them move through the world with fewer hangups than you felt like the yep. world had when you yes, were young. Yes, 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 uh-huh. exactly, uh-huh. exactly. I was so, I was just, I, I, I cannot tell you how refreshing it was. Mm. How absolutely, because it, it, it was, they were manifesting what I knew was possible, but had never seen it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do wonder when you were first, when you were first touring together with your band, did you have moments where you um, kind of noticed just your age difference in ways that made you feel self-conscious? Like just needing to move a little slower oh, than them well, or uh, anything oh, like no, that? Oh, no, it didn't make me feel self-conscious. I played it up for all it was worth. <laughs> <laughs> you know how it's done. You know, I hear you. Yeah, no, seriously, because, you know, because I have, a, I have a knee that, you know, really should be replaced. Sometimes it'll go out and I'll be on crutches. So, like, I have to, I have to travel with crutches in case it goes out and gets stuck in a bent position, uh, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, and and I've been going down the steps backwards for many years to to lessen the stress on on knees that are old. And of course, you know, I'm not going to be carrying anything going down the stairs backwards. So, you know, so they would lug all the stuff and, you know, they treated me so, they treated me as though I was an elder, like their grandparents. Mm. And, and, and they were totally caring, care, caretaking in that kind of way. And I loved it. Deep river, my home is Deep river, Lord. I want to cross over into campground. When you think about a time when, hopefully, maybe at some point, it will become safe for us to gather again. Um, yes. What do you picture? I think that I will do at least one, and I don't expect to do many others, but I know that I have to go and thank my audiences around the world. And I, I actually want to do that. And even though I'm going to have to take my crutches and then do, 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 and you know, we will figure out how we can do it in such a way that I, and that I'm not worn out. Um, because I, I need to go and say thank you. 
I think that we all have a purpose. Um, and, and it's a purpose that, you know, that is, you, you know, uniquely ours through whatever our unique gifts are or our, our skills or whatever, because every person has, every person is unique and every person is a, a part of, of the universal um, design. The universe doesn't design anything it doesn't want. And Lord knows I didn't design me. So um, on a given day, it may look hopeless or you may get depressed or you may go through really feeling just, oh my God, I can't make it. It's like if we can come back to a positive feeling about things, we can change the world. I came here to encourage people about that. Let it go, let it go. Glenn will turn 80 next year and is finally going on tour this fall. He can't afford to bring his band with him. He'll just have a musician accompanist, and his wife Elizabeth will also be joining him on stage. She was sitting nearby when Glenn and I talked over video. Glenn also has a new album out called The Ones Ahead. So this is the final act of my life. So every professional choice is made specifically with the questions of, Does this go to the core mission of encouraging the next generations? And does this enrich my life? Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, I know Elizabeth is right there with you. So, Elizabeth, you're welcome to chime in here, too. But is there anything when when you both talk about the kind of home that you look forward to being able to settle in, um, what do you picture? We've been so isolated with all of these moves that to be somewhere back where we can access good friends, old friends, and family, um, and build community, that's super, super important to us. And somewhere with a little garden, because I'm a gardener, and I'm, I'm no good if I don't have my garden, and a studio for Glenn to have, you know, create his next album, which he's already started on. He just needs space for him to finish it. And we want somewhere where Glenn can be really celebrated because he's just an amazing being. And oh, well, and look who's talking. The uh, total amazing <laughs> being. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a bit of a mutual admiration. Yeah, we do, yeah. Mm, yeah. Oh. We do. Yeah, so somewhere where we can live until we either leave the planet or have to go into long-term care. That's essentially it. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. like many artists, we've kind of lived on the edge most of our lives and things have shifted somewhat since Glenn's um, music was discovered after all those decades. Um, but it's still a little bit, you know, sometimes touch and go. So, yes. Um, but, you know, I'm, it's, it's, it's fantastic for me to be able to share my work with newer and younger audiences. Uh, and I want to share, you know, comfort and hope and reminders of the beauty of life that's still here to be experienced. You know, and, and, you know, I mean, because many people just don't realize that it's still here to be experienced, right?
That's Beverly Glenn Copeland and his wife, Elizabeth Glenn Copeland. The music in this episode came from his album, Transmissions, the music of Beverly Glenn Copeland, a compilation of music from his career. And you can listen to his brand new album, The Ones Ahead, out now. There are Spotify links to both albums in our show notes. And his fall tour dates are at beverlyglencopeland.com. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. Afi Yellow-Duke produced this episode. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azoulay, Lindsay Foster-Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at AnnaSalePix, that's P-I-C-S, and the show is at DeathSexMoney on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Catherine Dunn in Boulder, Colorado, who is a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money. Join Catherine and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. <laughs>